Everyone is looking for purpose, for a life that matters, and we want to be a church that helps people find that. This is the Collective Church Podcast from a life-giving and vibrant new church right here in London, Ontario. Here's this past week's message from our pastor, Tyler Fromm. Good morning. My name's Todd. I'm part of the team here at uh, Collective Church. If, you, if, you're join, if you're joining us online, it's a pleasure to have you. If you're joining us in person, it's a pleasure to see you. Um, we are in a series right now. It's called The Way of Jesus. And this series has been significant for us as a church. We've been, over the past few months, we've been taking a look at what it means to be an apprenticeship to Jesus. And specifically, what that means is We've been taking a look at uh, what it means to be with Jesus, become more like Jesus, and do what he did. Now, I want to first, first things first, I want to apologize in advance. I am getting over a a cough, so if you see me start to come a little undone, it's all good. (laughs) I might have to take a water break, so it's all good. But but specifically today, um, you all are in for a treat. Uh, We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through four, and there are two central themes to these scriptures. The first is temptation, and the second is forgiveness. Now, I know some of you might be wondering how I got selected to preach about this wonderful topic of temptation. Let me paint a picture for you. I'm so glad you asked. A few months ago, a few months ago, Pastor Tyler, he pulls me aside, and he says, Todd, I think that you, I think that you could speak really well to these scriptures here. And at the time, I was like, yeah, sure, I'll figure it out. And I go home, and I start reading these verses about temptation. In my mind, I go, what is this guy trying to say about me right now? Nonetheless, (laughs) here we are. Um, But no, these, these scriptures are significant because they force us to just reflect. They take, they, they force us to take a second and really um, assess whether or, not, whether or not we're living our lives based on whether or not, on, based on what the world expects of us versus what God expects. Are we living our lives based on our own agenda or are we choosing to become more like Jesus? I wanna pray for us and then we'll, we'll dive in. Uh, dear God, I just ask that your words would be spoken today, not my own. I'd ask that you open up our hearts for the people who are online and the people who are here in person, that we would receive your word and, and not just receive it and think, all oh, that was nice, but actually think about what we can do in our lives to actually apply these scriptures. And Lord, I just ask that I, although the, sometimes the, the verses can be heavy, that we receive your word and know that you are clear for our protection. Um, Lord, I, I am so thankful that um, you give me this opportunity to speak about temptation today. <coughs> and Lord, um, I just ask that um, you bless each and every person in this room and online. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, so <coughs> um, Luke 17, verse 1, reads like this. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, there will always be temptations to sin. But what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? I want to take some time and unpack this first verse a little bit because there's opportunity for us, even within 
these first few words. Here we find Jesus acknowledging that there will always be temptations to sin, not just sometimes, not just here or there, always. In essence, we will never outgrow temptation. Now, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I feel like we can underestimate the, the devil and his ability to tempt us. Like for most of us, when we think about temptation, we think about Eve in the garden. And we read that story, and from the surface, we go, well, I would have been able to see through that. A talking snake telling me to disobey God? Come on. Right? Um, But this exchange is significant. Here we learn how the first act of sin enters God's perfect world, and it was enabled through the devil's favorite attack method, which is temptation. And in this story, we have Eve. She's enjoying her perfect new life in the garden. And notice how the devil doesn't introduce himself to her with temptation at first. He plants a seed of doubt first, an idea, a question. He says, did God really say? Eve responds with, and I'm paraphrasing, but yeah, I think so. I think he said, don't touch that fruit over there. And the devil has her attention now, so now he proceeds to tempt her. He says, well, you certainly wouldn't die. God knows that if you, eat the tree from, if you eat the fruit from that tree, your eyes will actually be open. You will be like God. And then we all know the outcome of how that turns out. There's a really good book. It's called Live no, it's called Live no Lies by uh, John Mark Comer. He illustrates this beautifully. He says that the Genesis 3 lie is the paradigma- paradigmatic lie behind all lies. The devil's temptation has always been twofold. One, to seize autonomy from God. And two, to redefine good and evil based on the voice in our heads and the inclination of our hearts rather than to trust the loving word of God. And we see this even definitively. The dictionary defines temptation as the enticing to do wrong by promise of pleasure or gain. Even those last few words are powerful, by promise. Notice how the devil promises Eve in that moment. He says, you certainly wouldn't die. That word promise does something to us, especially for those in the room online who are going through a season of struggle or maybe you've experienced some trauma. Whenever someone invites us into something with a promise, what does that do? It disarms us. When someone promises something, they invite us into a place of certainty and security, and depending on the the state of our hearts, that can be so enticing. And we we know that once the devil sees that we've been disarmed, he smiles. He's got his foot in the door. Notice how when the devil approached Eve in the garden, it wasn't a, it wasn't a super like, destructive moment. Like the devil wasn't obstructive or grandiose. He was subtle. He was calm. And he planted an idea, a question. Did God really say? It's important that we acknowledge for a second even our vulnerability with statements like this because all too often we can feel like we hear God, but are we ever 100% sure? I personally can't say I've ever heard God say anything to me audibly, and if you have, I'm jealous. What does he sound like? <laughs> um, but, here, um, but here we see how cunning the devil can be when he's tempting Eve. So for us, we need, to be extra, we need to be extra careful when we feel like we're hearing God. Sometimes you hear this, you know, even in the church sometimes, someone will approach you and they say, well, God told me, and you go, mm. you brace yourself a little bit. <clears throat> Um, 
But I think as Christians, one of the best things we can do is actually bring those feelings into community and apply them through a filter of people who are also living with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what he does. <clears throat> now, whether you're going through a series of uh, a difficult season or experiencing God's provision, the second part of this definition of temptation applies to us across the spectrum. What is the devil tempting us with? Pleasure or personal gain? In the Bible, we see this played out over and over again. We see it with Eve in the garden. King David is tempted by lust. Samson is deceived by Delilah. <clears throat> Judas portrays Jesus, but he's tempted with money. Satan was bold enough to even try to tempt Jesus when he was alone. And even though Jesus would dismiss Satan, there's something to be said about with the devil not caring about where you are or where you've been. If the devil didn't hesitate to tempt, to tempt Jesus, there's no reason why he wouldn't look at you. Jesus says there will always be temptation. He continues in verse one, he says, there will always be temptation to sin, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? It would be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. Now here we find Jesus saying something that at first sounds a bit aggressive to us. First he acknowledges that we will without a doubt be tempted, but he goes on to say that <clears throat> sorrow awaits if you are the one doing the tempting. And we read that and it confronts us because ideally we don't like to think that we're, we like to think that we're beyond even being tempted, but Jesus says that if you are the one tempting, that there's severe consequences. He says it would be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to sin. Anyone in the room know what a millstone is? I didn't know at first, so I did some research. A millstone is a giant concrete plate, okay? And back then it had two purposes. It was a food processing device. So one would sit horizontal, the other would sit vertical, and it would be used to grind grain. <clears throat> the second use of a millstone was that it was used as an inescapable form of punishment. So as Jesus illustrates <coughs> here, if, you, um, if one was tied around your neck and you were tossed to sea, um, there was no escape, and the millstone actually symbolized a burden on your life, like a stronghold. So if you were tossed at sea with a millstone hung around your neck, it signified that you were dying to your own devices. Here we find Jesus in what we like to call one of his savage Jesus moments. Like, you know, sometimes you read bits of scripture and you cringe a little bit, and you go, oh, Jesus, did you have to, did you have to, <laughs> did you have to go there? I actually enjoy these moments, though, because when Jesus has um, aggressive moments in the Bible, the message is just crystal clear. Like, when Jesus warns his disciples, he's not subtle. Like, if you could imagine, <clears throat> if Jesus was trying to make a point, and he said, it would be better if thy stub thy toe than to do this. No. <clears throat> right? The message is clear. It's a little bit more aggressive because um, he's warning his disciples for their protection. <clears throat> Jesus says things like, it would be easier for a needle to go through the eye of a camel, and we go, oh, come on, Jesus. And from the surface, it's hard to, to soften that, but part of me wonders if that's literally the point. Because let's backtrack. If Jesus knows that the devil wages war on us by planting seeds of doubt, we have to assume that there's undeniable wisdom involved when Jesus speaks in a way that's crystal clear. 
I don't know about you personally, but um, I struggle with speaking directly. I prefer to speak directly. And not because I enjoy being a jerk or anything. Um, I just, when it comes to doing things, I like to operate efficiently, and that even means with communicating. But <clears throat> I know, me and the Lord are working on this, that <clears throat> um, I can often be misunderstood. I can. And there can be um, misinterpretation with the way I, with my intention versus someone's perception. Um, like, I don't know, maybe some of you can identify with this. If you receive like a five paragraph email and you know you can respond within like a few sentences, I'm also that person. Or maybe someone sends you a text and you reply with a few words, no emojis, and someone thinks there's something wrong with you, <laughs> right? I'm that person, I just don't like, you know, just give me the meat and potatoes, whatever. Um, my, dad, my dad was also like this, he's super <laughs> direct. Um, almost too direct. He's a, a retired police officer. And there were times growing up where he would say things that were really harsh, and there'd be times where I'd go, oh. Um, but now as I grow up, I, I can understand how within his line of work, the way he communicated would have had to have been clear. Um, and um, because most of us, and maybe you can identify with this too, where Sometimes you'll say something and you'll communicate, and somewhere between the communication and the reception, the meaning just gets lost in translation. Someone comes back to you and they go, oh, I didn't know you meant that. And that's frustrating. Right? And we see that even here in the Word. Jesus makes it clear that the consequences for tempting others is not fluffy. Right? Like if you were to imagine, this is how I kind of imagine, <clears throat> Satan trying to tempt one of the disciples after Jesus says something like this. And of course, you know, he'd do his formula. He'd say, he'd go up to maybe someone like Paul. He'd say, did God really say don't tempt others? And hopefully, Paul would respond like this. He'd say, uh, yeah, that is exactly what he said. He looked me straight in the eye, millstone neck, bottom of the ocean. He didn't even blink when he told me. <laughs> right? <laughs> what he said was what he said. I'm confident that's what he said. Right? <clears throat> Jesus' message, message is sealed airtight. There's no wiggle room for miscommunication. So when we read scripture or we look at, or, yeah, we look at scripture, it, it's important for us to remember that there's always a bigger intention behind everything, even when it's beyond our understanding. Yet Jesus, yes, Jesus is clear, but he's clear for our protection. This next piece of scripture is important because here we see Jesus calling on his disciples to also protect these little ones, he's referring, to he's referring to children here. Now, what's important for us to recognize is that here Jesus is calling on his disciples to, he isn't calling on these, his disciples to protect these children traditionally. Like whenever we think about protection, typically we think protecting from external circumstances. Um, but Jesus is doing the opposite. He actually warns his disciples to watch their behavior and make sure that they are not the ones causing these little ones to sin. Jesus isn't saying, make sure you defend these little ones from others or condemn them if they make mistakes. He says, watch yourselves. Jesus is conveying here that the environment that these children grow up in will ultimately dictate whether or not they choose to follow him. In the scripture, we see that Jesus just isn't passive about this. He paints a very vivid picture so his disciples understand the weight of the responsibility and the consequences. Death awaits if they tempt these children. 
And I think it's important for us to unpack this concept of environment because similar to Eve in the garden, <clears throat> we underestimate the role that our environments can have on us. There's a really good quote, maybe some of you have heard it, but it's that uh, we are the sum total of the people we keep around. And I love this quote because it, it, it confronts the cultural lie that everything, that we like to believe that everything comes from the outcome of the individual. We see this all the time, especially with fame. I find it interesting that whenever someone becomes successful, we glorify that person. And when they fall from grace from the outside, we scrutinize people because we've put them on such a high pedestal. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, we have no idea the environment that these people live in. We don't know who they keep around. We don't know if they actually care or if people are surrounded by other people who are constantly enticing them into more pleasure, more personal gain. And inevitably, we see people just make bad judgment calls. And for us as outsiders, it's like watching a, a car crash. We feel empathy, <coughs> but we also can't look away. And although we don't like to admit it, part of us is a little bit reassured that this celebrity is also actually just a human being who couldn't resist all the same, temp same temptations that we would fall for like in a second. Like for me personally, I wouldn't even have to be famous. I cannot even be left alone in the Apple store for too long. <laughs> like, like I'll be looking at stuff, I'll be like, wow, that's shiny, that's new, and I'll just buy stuff like I will. And I'll leave, my friends will approach me and they'll say, Todd, why did you buy that? And I'll say, well, I bought this thing because I, I need it for my YouTube channel. <laughs> They'll be like, Todd, you don't have a YouTube channel. I'll be like, I'm starting one tomorrow, so <laughs> better tune in. <laughs> I have temptation issues. <laughs> I'm just playing. Me and the Lord are working on it. <laughs> Story for another day. Um, but, those of you, but those of you in the audience, <clears throat> you might recognize this too, especially in sports. More often, um, if you watch sports at all, if you don't, I'm sorry. Um, the biggest determining factor um, whether or not someone makes it professionally <clears throat> is typically, it's not the person, a little, it's a little bit of the effort of the person, but oftentimes it's the, uh, the environment that they keep around. Rarely ever is the, the sum of one person's effort. It's the people who are in the background encouraging and sacrificing and watching over every step of the way. One of my favorite athletes does this really well. I won't mention who he is because I don't want to glorify anyone. <clears throat> Although... He is the best and most scrutinized athlete on the planet, and throughout his career, he's never that we know of, had a big public like moral failure. I followed his career for a long time, <clears throat> and what's interesting is that people often go, um, LeBron, <coughs> uh, <laughs> you've, never, you've never slept around, or he goes, you never like, had like, an affair or anything, and he goes, you know, I, well, I married this girl I've known since I was 12 years old, she's everything that I need. And they go, well, yeah, well, LeBron, you've grown up without a father. Like, how did you, you know, overcome that? He goes, well, my mom actually worked two jobs. She made sure I had everything that I needed so I could succeed. And people go, well, yeah, but I mean, like, you lived in this low-income neighborhood, like poverty and all that. How did you avoid temptation in that? And he goes, well, I actually had coaches, you know, that looked after me, made sure I was where I, I wasn't where I wasn't supposed to be and was where I was. And they go, yeah, but okay, this business, though, like, how did you learn how to run this massive 
business, you don't have an education. He goes, well, I actually hired my best friend. So they went to business school and they look out for my best interests. And I say that not to put anyone on a pedestal, but I say that to say that <clears throat> if Jesus is telling us that we're always going to face temptation, the best way for us to combat that has to be through community. And other people who care less about, who are less concerned about the external, but who they are on the internal. We can't control who tempts us, but we, control, we can control who we keep around us to live with and walk with us. We can't control how we're tempted, but we can control how we respond to temptation. But these little ones, these children, they can't control that yet. So Jesus says, don't you dare cause these little ones to sin. I'm trusting you with their well-being, so watch yourselves. What I'm trying to convey here is that the best way for us to guard ourselves against temptation is um, the answer has to be twofold. So we have to make sure that we're aware of who we keep around. And we need to self-audit ourselves to make sure that we're providing that supporting environment for others. There's a personal and a communal expectation. Now, notice how in this scripture, Jesus doesn't necessarily give these disciples like a step-by-step guide on how to raise these, these kids. Like nowhere does he say, like, add the sour, or add the sour, add the flour, mix the salt, send them to the vacation Bible school, and boom, <laughs> you'll, have, <laughs> you'll have perfect kids. Notice I don't have kids. <laughs> he commands these disciples to watch themselves, which is great, but what happens? What happens when inevitably these children do stumble? When they fall off the path, how are they supposed to respond? Jesus says this in verse three and four. He says, if another believer sins, rebuke that person. Then, if there is repentance, forgive. Even if that person wrongs you seven times a day and each time turns again and asks for forgiveness, you must forgive. What I love about that is that Jesus confronts with us that... um, most, most, Jesus confronts us with what most would consider one of the hardest parts of following Jesus, which is forgiveness. I don't know about you, but I typically have like two strikes, two strikes in me. I can show grace once if someone wrongs me. The second time, I'm, I tend to be done. But here's why I think why this posture is important. <clears throat> when we think about investing time and energy into people, especially kids, oftentimes we expect the development to go like this like upward trend. Um, <clears throat> however, inevitably, when we, even when we think we've done everything and given everything, people still have a tendency to just look like this, kind of all over the place. And that can be incredibly <laughs> frustrating. And what's even more frustrating, frustrating is that culturally, we've manipulated God's word to mean something that it doesn't. I'll, I'll explain. Culturally, We've defined love to mean this. This is what we did. Everyone and anyone should feel loved and expected for who they are, which is a beautiful thing to say, right? Wrong. The problem with that sentence is that it's a half-truth or a three-quarter truth. And again, here's the devil showing up in the most cunning of ways because often what we forget is that, yes, Jesus says he will always love us and want us to bring our authentic selves to him, but he also calls on us to leave our sin behind. Jesus says, come to me, confide in me. I will always forgive you now. Go and live, but leave that here. 
And culturally, we've just conveniently left that part out. You might ask why. I'm so glad you asked. Um, <laughs> here's my hot take. <clears throat> a love that is submissive without consequences requires no moral ethic, which is the simplest, most comfortable, unobtrusive way to go about life. And some of you might go, well, what's wrong with that? I enjoy being content. I also enjoy being content. I'm the happiest version of myself when I feel content. The problem with our world is that our consumer culture is built off of our discontent, and our moral standards aren't built off of much of anything at all. Which is an incredibly, <laughs> it's a tricky thing to navigate. Um, because on one side, we're constantly being told that we're not good enough. Unless we do more, buy more, 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 more. What does that do? That feeds into a desperate need to feel accepted. <laughs> so we've arrived at this place where if we make a mistake, this is typically what we do. We rationalize the mistake in our mind so that it's easier to live. We're already exhausted by trying to live up to everyone else's expectations. So our brains, naturally at all times, are creating and telling us stories where we're either the hero or we're the victim. Notice how either conclusion works out in our favor. Often when we're trying to justify a bad decision, the story we tell ourselves often ends like this. And I guess that's just the way I am. It's just the way I am. And um, <laughs> um, I'm reading this book right now, actually. It's called um, Atomic Habits. It's by James Clear. Maybe some of you have heard of it. He illustrates this brilliantly. He's, he describes how our habits ultimately dictate our identity. Or let me rephrase that word identity with the way I am. And culturally, we don't, we don't really like to take responsibility for our bad behavior. Um, so if we're able to get away with our mistakes, even when we know we've done something wrong, what we'll do is we'll numb ourselves with excuses. Or even worse, if we get a positive reaction um, for our bad behavior, it actually reaffirms that it's okay. And what's interesting is that in this book, James, excla James explains that the longer we're left alone with ourselves, the harder it is to detach our behavior with our identity. I'll say that again. The longer we're left alone with ourselves, the harder it is to detach our behavior with our identity. And then, inevitably, the toxicity starts to pour out. <clears throat> so whenever you... Uh, when so when people typically are left alone too long, you start to hear phrases like this. Yeah, I know I shouldn't have done that, but you know, my parents, they should, they should love me unconditionally though, right? Or uh, yeah, like I, I've got this problem, I keep, I keep sinning, but if God were really real, he would love me unconditionally. Or here, here's my favorite. Maybe you guys have heard this one. I just came across this. If you can't accept me at my worst, <laughs> You don't deserve me at my best. <laughs> like, what does that mean? I think that comes from like the New Living Gen Z translation of the Bible. <laughs> I'll just play it. <laughs> but what does that mean? Okay, you get to choose to be the worst version of yourself, and if I don't accept that, then I don't get the best version. I gag when I hear that a little bit. <laughs> um, but here's the problem. Here's the problem with that thought. Unconditional love and unconditional tolerance are not the same thing. They're not the same thing. If you hire someone 
and they show up late, and you pull them aside, and they respond like this, hey, listen, I'm always going to be five to ten minutes late. That's just the way I am. That person would likely not have a job, right? Or if you're having a conversation and someone goes, you know what, when I'm backed up against a wall, I tend to lash out. <laughs> no! <laughs> that is unacceptable behavior, right? Um, Jesus says, even in the verse, he says, if someone, if a believer sins, rebuke that person. Unconditional love is yes, I will always love you, I will always forgive you, no matter what you do, but this behavior is unacceptable. Not because I'm here to condemn you or I'm here to dismiss you. To the contrary, I actually love you too much to let you keep doing this. I used to have, I used to, have to have these coming in conversations, coming in late conversations with my employees a lot. And, and uh, it was fun because you'd always catch your people off guard, your employees off guard. I would sit them down and I'd say, so Joel, you've been coming in late the last few days. Joel would say, yeah, I know, I'm sorry. They expect that they're going to get condemned in this moment. And I go, okay, like, is everything going on? Is there everything going okay at home? Is there anything I can help you out with? And they go, no, you know, I'm just, I'm not getting to bed on time, you know. New season of Ozark just came out. And I go, okay, yeah, I get it. <clears throat> but here's the thing. I hired you because I saw potential in you and I want to help you grow, but I can't help you do that if you're doing this. Immediately, the, the, the tone of the conversation changes. I've now conveyed that I see potential in him, and he thinks he's going to be condemned. So I can say something now like, hey, I was actually hoping that you could lead by example and show the, the team how to do this. Can I get your commitment to coming in early tomorrow? Joel would say, yeah, no problem, and he would come in early, or he'd be fired. <laughs> I'm just playing. <laughs> um, I'm just playing. Um, I say, I'm about to say this. God's love, God's love is not passive, okay? To the contrary, his forgiveness is persistent, right? It's grace and truth intertwined in a way that can be challenging for us. On both sides, as his kids trying to evade temptation, it's difficult, but for us as the community, it's difficult to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. And I, I know some of you in the audience are going, yeah, well, you know what, Todd, seven times in one day is a bit much, and I hear you, but <clears throat> um, let, me, let me explain why this forgiveness posture is so important. Um, I feel like sometimes... <laughs> It's difficult for us, to forget, for us to forgive because we've allowed the world to manipulate what forgiveness means. I think that sometimes we, we, we associate forgiveness with submission or enabling behavior that we don't actually want to see. <clears throat> um, and we've let, the, we've let the world tell us that if we, if we don't accept everyone's flaws, that we've dismissed the individual. That is not true. That is not true. <clears throat> this posture is so important. <clears throat> um, without a doubt, we should be thankful. We should be thankful if people repent back to us. It's a blessing if they do. You know why? Try and imagine the consequences if people don't. When people feel like they can't return to their community with their problems, they will most definitely turn to isolation where the devil goes perfect. They're mine now. As soon as people start to think, I'm just, 
misunderstood. No one understands me. You know what? I'm, I'm different. I'm different. I'm not like them. I'm embarrassed. I can't go to my family, my friends, my church, my teacher with this. The devil rubs his hands together and he starts to move in. Hopefully, hopefully none of you ever have to go through this. But I'm sure some of you can think of a situation where there's something severe going on with someone you care about. And maybe you're unaware of it. Or someone close to you is making bad decisions and they're too ashamed to come to you with it. And after all the aftermath of the destruction, <clears throat> you just wish you had known about it sooner. When Jesus instructs us to forgive, he doesn't call on us to be submissive. <clears throat> He's saying the consequences are too severe if this person can't feel my love through you. Whether it's seven times or a hundred times, if you're reluctant to forgive, the consequences are too severe. As a church, we read Jesus' words and we aspire to exemplify them, even when they're difficult or when it's the last thing we want to do or we feel like we're at our weakest, our lowest, nothing left in the gas tank moment because he modeled the way first. He died for us. He paid the price so that we didn't have to, so we didn't have to go through life <coughs> on our own, in our own strength, desperately trying to find um, acceptance everywhere but within him. I heard, I heard another pastor say this a long time ago, and it still sticks with me, that salvation for us is free, but the cost did not come cheap. So for us as, um, <clears throat> so for us as Christians, we, we need to continue to acknowledge the price that Jesus paid and need to make sure that we're asking ourselves, are we becoming more or less like Jesus today? Am I living with Jesus, becoming more like Jesus? Am I doing what he did? If you're in the room or if you're online and you feel like the environment of your life needs to change um, or you need new people to walk with, I want to encourage you as a church, we want to invite you in. Let this be your invitation so that we can connect with you and learn more about you um, and be a fertilizer that helps you grow. Maybe you've come to the end of yourself and you're just done with falling victim to temptation, let me confront the lie that you surrendering that to Jesus is not a sign of weakness, it's a sign of strength. Right. <clears throat> if you've seen and felt the devil's destruction and you're looking for a better way, please take a step, connect with us. <clears throat> and let me reassure you that you're on the right track. As a church, we wanna model, <clears throat> we wanna model what it means to be disciples who make disciples, who create a space where you know that you don't have to go through life on your own. Where collectively our mission is not self-gratification self until we die, it's to make people, make it all about people seeing Jesus. I wanna pray for us and then we'll, we'll worship together. <clears throat> Dear God, I'm so thankful for, I'm so thankful for this opportunity, Lord, to speak to <clears throat> people online and in the room. And Lord, I ask that as we, as we continue on into our weeks that you soften our hearts. Lord, and if there's something or someone in our lives where, where we need to forgive, Lord, I'd ask that you allow us, give us the strength we need to embrace people. And Lord, lead by example and <clears throat> glorify you with your love and display your grace. Lord, I, I ask that you light a fire within us <clears throat> so that we can apply everything that you're saying to our daily lives and make way for other people to see Jesus. Lord, I ask that you guard our hearts as we continue to be tempted. Lord, I ask that you 
empower our communities to surround us and provide a safe space so that we can so that we can navigate those moments with grace and truth and we can reject the devil when he tries to tempt us. Lord, I ask that you, I ask for your protection, your grace, your strength for each and every person in this room and online. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like more information on Collective Church, find us on social media at This Is Collective Church or reach us on our website, collectivechurch.ca. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you Sunday.